Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, Ed, what a month it has been since I last spoke to you, huh? Mm, yes, yes, as has been the case for much of the last five years. <laughs> it, this week has uh, has been compressed. All, all of history is happening in seven days quite the chunky zip file isn't it (laughs) reality these days yeah i am ostensibly in some ways all right i'm still safe and well and the majority of who of the people who are close to me are well and it's been an absolutely stunning summery weekend in glasgow here in scotland we've been easing the lockdown and people generally seem to be behaving but no, I haven't mm. been out that much because I'm really terrified about a second wave. But I did yeah, manage yeah. to go out and uh, spend some time by the canal. Um, and I've been reading Samantha Irby because I read her first couple of books and have been very behind in catching up with her. So she gave me a proper good chuckle. So there's that as well as the horror that's been happening. But I feel a certain sense of yeah, I'm going to say it, Ed, hope in terms of the resistance and the support that is global and that is mm. bipartisan at the moment. At least it seems that way from my side of the pond. You, of course, are on the other side where so much more, well, this is all going down. So how are you? Yeah, um, as as uh, we were saying just before we went on, like last night, I... Meant to go to bed at about 11, because I haven't been sleeping particularly well the last couple of days. Mainly due to allergies, but also the world. But, you know, it's a combination of things. But, um, so I wanted to go to bed, and then I was just did that thing of lying in bed for two hours, thinking, I should really stop looking at my phone, I should really stop looking at my phone, I should really stop looking at my phone. <laughs> yeah. And just, but instead, scrolling through my Twitter feed, retweeting links to, you know, bail funds and retweeting uh, any images or articles which I didn't think would be too uh, upsetting to the people who follow me. Not in the sense that I'm trying to protect people from the horrors of the world, but like everyone aware how bad the world is. You know, I don't feel like you necessarily need to go out of your way to, you know, remind people of that if you don't have to. Mm. Whereas it's more, it's more instructive or more constructive to just say, hey, these are some people that you can donate to. I've been donating to bail funds when I can to yeah, just feel a little less powerless about all of this sort of stuff. Um, but also, like you, having that weird mixture of horror at the violence being meted out by the police against protesters and hope and just being, being moved by the people showing up, going out, risking their lives in order to protest against the horrible violence that's been meted out for decades in america by the the police over here and the the brutality of it all the injustice yeah so even though it clarifies the obstacle that is there it's nice to know that there is a force waiting to meet it and that that force is is global that there are people protesting it worldwide there are people who are donating money from worldwide i certainly know that all my friends from back home have been posting like links to various like charities and things like that and trying to engage with it so it's it's it, there is it's there, there is something comforting about seeing like that uh, awakening and just that also sense of like oh yeah all, all these people I'm glad I know these people these people are good and it's nice to have that confirmed at the same time that you are also seeing the number of people who uh, on social media will be straight up like saying like oh I'm all for protesting but when you you know steal from a target that's too far <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just like yeah the people who are maybe not as committed to the difficulty of progress as they should be yes wasn't it oh hang on what's his full name jabuki oh yeah yeah i think jabuki white put it perfectly when he was like <laughs> tweeted people are like that target could be someone's son <laughs> <laughs> and i mean that's it that's that's it like that there has been a global response and also the number of people 
I mean, just here in the UK on a, on a very different slant, but on Monday, Dominic Cummings, the top aide to Boris Johnson, gaslit the country in a way that only he mm-hmm. knows how to do. And it was quite... <laughs> I don't know how to put this, Ed, other than when other Tories are complaining, you know shit's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. okay, here we are temporarily on the same side because it's really that awful. Mm. Yeah, I, I also agree in terms of, and it's there's something quite amazing about seeing people protesting social distancing as well, like that, that mm-hmm. we're still able to demonstrate and gather. And I can't remember exactly who said it because... What a wonderful thing is, is that my Twitter and Instagram, for example, are full of people um, sharing quotes and amplifying their platforms for this movement. But someone said, uh, what is the greater threat to us in the immediate, like now, uh, COVID-19 or police brutality? And you're like, well, actually, I think it's going to be police brutality for the majority of people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, there's something so often overwhelming about the sheer number of images that you can get from big mass movements like this because of, you know, like everyone has a camera phone, everyone has access to the internet, whatever, so they can share them. But you just you get so many, like, of these little images that you... that really kind of strike you with the their immediacy of, of what's happening. And the one, for some reason, that's le- leaping out to me was someone posted a photo of a street lamp I, I forget where the protest was and it was of just a hand sanitizer duct taped to it uh, for the protesters so that they could all kind of like you know make sure that they're uh, dis- disinfecting their hands and everything in the time of COVID-19 and I was just kind of like that for me is just like a real iconic image in that it really kind of like sums up the moment like yeah. oh my god there's so much happening <laughs> that you need to start ductating hand sanitizers to the to the lampposts mm-hmm. um in addition to you know like the the third street in uh, the third street precinct in minneapolis being on fire and all these other kind of like images that already feel like they're 50 years old just in the sense of like that you know there's a connection to violence in the past obviously but also just like the the crispness of it and the how much they kind of like clarify clarify and crystallize you know what's going on so a busy week (laughs) (laughs) uh i have to say i didn't do a huge amount culturally this week probably the main thing um that i did i i as i've mentioned i think to you i don't know if i've mentioned on the podcast before but i've been playing through the uncharted trilogy because that was free on playstation 4 last month Ah. And and i'd never played through any of those games despite the fact that i have a real proustian thing with the first game because the first game came out when i was working full time at rare and i just remember the so like everyone i worked with at rare played uncharted when it came out and i have such a clear memory of that period in my life associated with with uncharted and just how much of a ripple effect it sent through um everyone at the studio being like oh shit these (laughs) these guys are really doing good work and just being really jealous of it so i've been playing through those and uh, i'm just about to start the third one and one of my um, favorite things this week was I was listening to the Besties podcast, which is the Polygon podcast from Griffin McElroy, Justin McElroy, Chris Plant, and Rush Frustick, where Aww. they have been looking at the games of 2007 because there aren't really that many games coming out now, at least not ones that you know kind of merit, merit a huge amount of discussion. And there was just at the start of it, Justin went on a very funny riff where he was talking about the dissonance that exists in the first Uncharted where the opening scene is like oh you know this Nathan Drake guy he's like a rogue he's like really lovable you know he's really nice and then the first thing you do playing the character is murder murder 30 people (laughs) um, it was just very funny to me like crystallizing as much as I do enjoy those games and do think they're really fun and really charming and like the writing's good with the characters the the mechanics of them which is you run around shooting a lot of people do kind of uh, yeah it does kind of have this this they don't sit next to each other terribly well all the time but Mm -hmm. I've really been enjoying those games They are great fun, although I did find myself in a particular level of frustration playing Uncharted 4 when I was stuck Mm. on the Scotland level. 
then I felt like I should have some kind of <laughs> extra ability to be able to complete it. But that was the one I found trickiest. <laughs> I think so far the only like bad movie one was the first game where you're being chased by these like golem looking fuckers underground which i just hated <laughs> it's just really stressful but or in the third one there's a bit where you have to light a fire under like a giant globe and you have to kind of like turn the globe until a certain point so that the lights line up and with certain countries to unlock something and it's just a miserable puzzle <laughs> it's just constantly shifting this thing around until the shapes move up and there's not a huge amount of skill to it you just kind of accidentally fall into it and i just found that to be a real pain <laughs> and that was like uh, that was the moment that it hasn't turned me against the game, but I think that was the moment where I kind of thought, yeah, some of these puzzles probably needed a little more time in the oven to to really to really work. Uh, how about you? How's your your week in culture been? Oh, Ed, yeah, that's a question because again, uh, it's been it's been quite a tricky month. Mm-hmm. I am still on my live recorded. I don't know what the correct hybrid portmanteau term we're going to come up with, but um, I've been watching a lot of National Theatre Live the globe as well on youtube i think to just kind of balance out the difference between watching like as close as i can get to live performance rather than watching tv necessarily i did watch hannah gadsby's douglas on netflix um Mm. though i did get to see her perform it live in glasgow towards the end of last year and it was interesting watching it recorded because she is talking to an American audience rather than us uh, in, in, in Scotland when I saw her. So it felt more kind of conspiratorial, like, huh, lol, America, where she's like directly confronting Americans. Um, right. Although I did see a comment on Twitter a while back that said um, Hannah Gadsby is Ricky Gervais for people who vote Warren. It's like... <laughs> Oh, what what part of that is wrong, though? (laughs) And I I still think it's a very powerful piece of work, but maybe truth contains multitudes. Both of those things can be true. Mm. And uh, on a somehow, in my mind, similar note, I rewatched Jupiter Ascending. Yes. Because because I was half cut and it called out to me. <laughs> oh, the lines, the lines. It is such a bizarre piece of work, but like, like the Wachowski gals, like, go off, like, why not? They were being like ambitious and overly earnest, and it's still pretty entertaining. Like, I think it forgot to have a sense of humor. That's the problem. Mm. And they are trying to fit so much stuff in there, and yet they kind of tread over old ground, um, particularly in terms of like. We are this superior collection of beings or whatever that are using humans as batteries, essentially. It's like, oh, well, it's Mm. kind of the Matrix again, isn't it, in a way? But with better dresses, I don't know. I'm still really (laughs) fond of it because I just love them. I think they're two of the Mm. most interesting filmmakers working and I'd love to see what they do next. We, We spoke a while ago about how they sort of shut down their Chicago office off the back of Sense8 being cancelled and, and that was incredibly sad and I think Sense8 was incredible because they managed to kind of that that format suited them that it was like yeah. they, it's like everything else was kind of like a really great warm up and run up for Sense8 which I think was incredibly tight of what I saw but yeah it, it, it's it's still just like Mila Kunis saying with as much conviction as possible I love dogs. I've always loved dogs <laughs> as a way to get into Channing Tatum's pants. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. It's still, I'm still really fond of it. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be great. It's amazing how like much it goes at a clip and how much they manage to pack in in like the first 20 minutes, let alone the sort of two hour, five minute runtime. But Tuppence Middleton gets dropped and forgotten about. And we don't really see what happens to her. Um, mm. and Jupiter is frustratingly passive like it's all yeah. kind of swooping and, and deus ex machina stuff and yet and yet Ed and yet so that's that's been me this week <laughs> it, yeah I mean my main memory I haven't seen Jupiter Ascending since I saw it in the cinema and I remember having a, a lot of fun with it but like 
I think particularly because it's now been when did that movie come out? Two thousand fifteen? Like yeah, five yeah. years or so. Yeah, yeah. It's been five years since then and there ha- and that was also the same year as Mad Max Fury Road, which is a movie that also is like wildly ambitious, but I think, you know, kind of sticks the landing a bit more. But there is you know, the last five years of blockbuster cinema has been really lacking in really that kind of idiosyncrasy and that kind of vision. And even if, you know, not everything the Wachowskis try works like 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 you, I think they're just such interesting filmmakers and that they do try so many big things and, and with both Jupiter Ascending and Sense Eight kinda seemed like their last gasp of having a budget of that size until you know like lana's working on uh, the matrix 4 currently so you know that's going to come out at some point and hopefully that'll be similarly kind of like big and ambitious and inventive or whatever but you know it, it did kind of feel like maybe them realizing we may not get another chance to make a movie of this scale for a while so let's just kind of throw everything we have at it and as such the movie is you know it's unlike any anything else that yeah. you've done see from a major studio and that anything that's really come out in the last couple of years so obviously we've been uh, talking about a lot of real world things at the moment and that I think kind of starts to bleed into our discussion of the news this week certainly as it pertains to COVID-19 and the ongoing uncertainty about when cinemas will be coming back in the US currently there's no date set for when theatres will be opening en masse and there's a lot of uncertainty about that but in the UK at least uh, Cineworld who are the largest cinema chain in the UK or certainly one of the largest are planning to reopen next month which as you pointed out Emily is tomorrow <laughs> which <laughs> is it, it, is hard to believe because it seems like May just started whilst it also is seven years long it's weird time's strange right now but um, yes Cineworld are planning to reopen and yeah I mean I I personally am not sure when I'll be going into a cinema again. Emily, when do you think you'll be feeling ready to go back into a cinema? Not for some time, Ed. Even some of my favourites, like my local Glasgow Film Theatre. Like, no. I think, sorry, it's my mistake. I think it's actually July, like the middle of July, that Cineworld are planning to open. But again, in the way that time works in a pandemic, that could just as well be in two days or two months. (laughs) And... I mean Cineworld it when lockdown first happened and Cineworld shut its doors it immediately tried to lay off its entire staff um, mm. and then because of public backlash and pressure hey guys maybe coming together <laughs> and being very vocal about stuff actually gets things done Emily is a fan of direct action and, and then I think uh, because of that Cineworld's CEO has the most amazing name. Like his first name is Moody, mm, wow. which, which I don't know if that's like his given name or a nickname. Either way, tells you a lot. He did a sort of open letter to Cineworld and Picture House, I believe, is a chain that's also owned by Cineworld, mm-hmm. saying like, you know, you'll, you'll all be furloughed now. But you know, that was because of pressure. That wasn't out of the good of their hearts. No. And I think this might be similar. There's been announcements that it's going to open, I mean, at least in the, the the first couple of films that they will have on the books might be Tenet, the new Christopher Nolan film, which uh, yeah. as, this, as Sky News was reporting it, I think it was put very well, which has refused to budge from its 17th of July date, <laughs> which is true. Like if you, if you're not, that, that's just a flat out refusal and. I mean, kudos to the Broccolis and everyone involved in No Time to Die to shifting Bond to November, at least. Like, and mm. very early on, like, I think that's actually incredibly respectful and very um, considerate of everyone involved. Um, but Cineworld, so maybe Tenet, um, we all know I'm not a Christopher Nolan fan, Ed, anyway. And uh, Mulan as well, which was initially going to be out in March, has been pushed to July, but I see that being pushed again. So if Cineworld wants to open with only Christopher Nolan films on, good good luck to everyone who's desperate to see a Christopher Nolan film in the cinema, particularly when Cineworld has not laid out in any detail whatsoever its safety plan, because mm. it's saying, oh yeah, no, we'll be open. So what, what measures are you putting in place? 
ah, we'll tell you when we open. No, you can't do that. Like, I think this is, I can't see that this is anything other than being a way to try and like court the market and trying mm. to reassure their shareholders with an, an incredibly empty promise. It's different if you say like, right, we're, we know how we're going to open. This is what we've put in place. We'll update it if, if measures change by the time we're due to open. But we all know what we need to do just now for, for the best. And I, but also I don't see how we're going to be able to, even two metres apart in a cinema, it's not like you're just passing each other on the street. And this is the thing, Ed, you're saying, when am I going to feel comfortable being in a cinema again? I want nothing more than to be in a cinema again. But I don't think yeah. it's responsible for me because I still have no idea if I have COVID antibodies, if I've had it. I have no I have no way of testing myself. I could be completely asymptomatic. I don't feel comfortable about being in a room for about two hours with, with people because mm. it's not about distancing at that point. If anyone wants to kind of put more power into like drive-ins and making kind of anyone who doesn't have a car, you know, being able to like make sanitized pods for people to kind of rock up and sit in and, and we can all be in our little bubbles like a sort of Jetsons um, <laughs> kind of workaround. Great, fine. But to just say, oh yeah, we're going to be open and not say anything any detail about distancing measures or even say like be honest and be like well this is posing a problem because it's not really about distancing it's the fact that we'll by the end of that like 90 minute two hour period you know stuff will have been able to be transmitted it's mm. wild ed it's wild i i don't see how they i hope they don't get away with it frankly yeah i was um someone i think it was rachel syme posted a picture on Twitter this week showing the uh, inside of a theatre that had been like an actual, you know, um, live performance theatre that had been refitted for social distancing. And it was essentially just, they just torn out all the chairs and they just had like two chairs there, then a space, then like one chair, then a space and then chairs. And that's kind of the only way that I could imagine you'd be able to set up for a cinema where you just literally, not only do you reduce the percentage of set tickets that you're going to sell you know so you say okay it's only going to be at 50 percent capacity but in order to actually enforce the idea of people being able to remain far enough away from each other for the full time and not have to like you know awkwardly shift shimmy past each other to get to your seats or whatever is you're literally going to have to tear out half the seats in the cinema and have them um you know a certain distance apart oh, yeah. which I'm not sure how many theatres would be willing to do that. I mean, it's not even that hard a thing to do because, you know, we always had to remove seats at the showroom all the time and it was a bit of a pain, but it was a thing you could do. Yeah, so, like, unless you have something that's that comprehensive where you're literally, like, yeah, we have reconfigured the entire way that cinema, uh, the inside of a cinema is set out so that it more closely resembles some of the weirder seats in the Sheffield Odeon. Uh, it's a very specific, very specific <laughs> reference. <laughs> but anyone who's been there and been into the real depths of that place will have been in some screens that have, like, two seats to a row, three seats to a row. It's very weird. Um, but, yeah, that's, that seems to be, like, the only way you could really make it work and ensure people's safety, and unless cinemas are going to be able to co uh, commit to that. Um, yeah, I personally <laughs> don't really feel like I'll be seeing the inside of a cinema for quite some time, which is a shame. But also, uh, yeah, I don't want to get sick or to get someone else sick. You know, <laughs> that's the that's what it boils down to. I'm fine waiting for Tenant to be on demand, yeah, uh, yeah. and to yeah, or to to finally understand what the hell that movie's about. The thing I realized this week that the thing that the Tenant trailer reminds me of is the almost pizza sketch from Saturday Night Live where Oh my god, it's, yes. <laughs> where it's kind of like so it's time travel. It's like time travel. <laughs> <laughs> that was their intention. Who's? Uh, one of my one of my all-time favorite SNL <laughs> sketches. Um, but that's why it seems to be like the way it's really trying hard to justify that it's not a time travel <laughs> movie um, when you watch it and I'm sure you will we'll all watch it and be like, "Oh yeah, so it's basically time travel." Chris, cool. Thanks. But yeah, I've, I've not got massive interest in it other than um, it having a good cast and the preview that played before Rise of Skywalker, I think, 
was pretty good. They showed like a fifteen minute chunk when I saw Rise of Skywalker at Christmas, and that was like it looked cool and it was very um, exciting. More, much more so than Rise of Skywalker ended up being. So maybe, maybe I'm just judging it more f- uh, fairly by comparison. Our next piece of news is uh, about uh, the new Martin Scorsese picture, not the one that he filmed for the BBC, um, which weirdly, like, that um, clips from that got shared a lot on various, like, news sites by uh, Ian Mangani, who I sort of know through Twitter, so it was really weird looking at, like, Polygon articles, which were just his a thread of his tweets. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always weird when someone you know kind of ends up in the in the real news. But, um, yeah, so he, not not counting the, the, the short kind of thing about uh, being in quarantine that he made for the BBC, his forthcoming next uh, feature, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yes, <laughs> I got it right that time. <laughs> Uh, as discussed recently, I read the book and um, the book by David Grant upon which the movie is based. And I keep there's like seven different ways I say the title and none of them are right. But that's the correct one, which has been his he's been developing it for a, at least a couple of years at this point. I think at one point there was talk of it being like a show on Hulu or something. But currently the plan is for it to be a feature film starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro kind of finally joining together two of his his big uh, muses, uh, Scorsese, set in Oklahoma in the 1920s, all about the violence that was meted out against uh, the Osage tribe of Native Americans, uh, who were a tribe who became incredibly rich because of land rights that they had to uh, a kind of a like terrible bit of land in Oklahoma, which wound up being like incredibly oil rich, so they all became incredibly wealthy from it, and also became the victims of a kind of conspiracy to, uh, you know, kill a lot of them. It's a it's a very upsetting but very compelling story that David Grant tells brilliantly in the book, and it seems like a good fit for Scorsese as someone who like who has never really made a western, and he says that that's kind of his vision for this is that it's going to be a western, but it's going to be all about this particular dark chapter of American history and it's also going to be wildly expensive so much so that Paramount who at one point were going to produce the movie kind of balked at the cost um, recently and kind of backed out but this week Apple stepped into the breach and said that they will provide $200 million for the budget for the movie for Scorsese to film it with Paramount distributing it with kind of very low liability on their part because they are obviously not footing the money uh, which, as someone who's a big fan of Scorsese and enjoys to see him bilk big tech, tech <laughs> companies for huge amounts of money to make his movies, uh, I'm excited to see what he does with it. But it is, yeah, it's, it's just another case of the film industry being very weird nowadays. <laughs> In yeah. Scorsese, who's probably a strong contender for like the greatest living American filmmaker, certainly one of them, has to struggles to get his movies made the way that he would want them but also that the people who will help you make it are you know tech billionaires who don't really have much to do with films other than at least not until recently anyway yeah i mean some of these tech giants having less money i think could only be a good thing but that's not how it's going to work is it it's going to be on a return (laughs) Mm. and i mean that scorsese can make nice little films by himself at home for maybe nothing (laughs) i there's nothing wrong with having a really big budget as long as people are getting paid properly Mm -hmm. but i still don't think that's where the money's gonna go right you know so i'm and in terms of a western gangs of new york felt very western at times in terms Mm. of the framing um yeah and because new york at that time wasn't particularly built up or dense so it does look a bit more like pioneering even though obviously it's a very different era of American history mm. but but just on sight on scene there's a kind of western elements to it Ugh. I mean I liked The Irishman when I watched it eventually and I'd say you know it's not like Scorsese's out of his game mm. it's just if all of that mo- <laughs> and it's not to say that like I just think all of that money in the Irishman spent on trying to make them look younger. Mm. <laughs> I'm just yeah. like, Marty, show me your cost lines. Show me your budget <laughs> breakdown, please. 
because if that money isn't going to the artists because remember that's it like everyone on a film crew is an artist right i'm funnily enough ed i'm quite i'm feeling quite skeptical about this <laughs> and i think sometimes a really big budget can mar i keep coming back to the um the Lars von Trier film, The Five Obstructions. Mm, yeah. And I think that's a really interesting example of how you can make a film again and again in various different ways. I'm also not someone to say that, like, oh, well, you can make it on no budget or micro budget then, because no people should be paid. <laughs> but, and and I guess if Scorsese... If, if anyone can make a film about whatever they want, however they want, with however much money they want, I guess Scorsese is one of the oldest in the business. So if anyone, why not him? But I'm also just a bit like, I don't know. I don't think it's a guarantee that it's going to necessarily be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, Ed, I'm working this out loud <laughs> and trying to figure out why my, my gut says no. And it's very hard to verbalize that sometimes. It's funny you mentioned the um, five instructions, though, because I, I remember for years... That was Lars von Trier's plan was to make a sequel to that, where it would have been Scorsese having to do oh, uh, God, scenes from it? Taxi Driver. Actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I I feel those plans got put on ice after he became persona non grata at Cannes. I think that was around yeah. at the time that people stopped talking about that as an active thing. But I I always thought that would have been an interesting thing to see because obviously the 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 first one that he made, you know, like um, he was working with someone who was a icon to him but not someone who had necessarily ever kind of like reached the level where he was working in a huge studio system whereas I think it would be really fascinating to see him take Scorsese who at that point you know had made a bunch of like 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 you said Gangs of New York but like also something like The Aviator which was a huge epic that cost a huge amount of money to see him really have to pare it all down and have to be put through the ringer I, I still think that would would be a really fascinating thing to see, and even more so now that you know, like you say, like Scorsese taking all that money to make The Irishman, and you know, kind of toying with digital effects that don't seem to kind of work out. Like maybe have him work on a much smaller project would be interesting. Even as I do enjoy his his excess, and I do like the idea of him. Like I say, there's just something really appealing to me about him just rocking up to all of these tech companies saying, yeah, please give me hundreds of millions of dollars. Sure, you'll get your money back. And then just kind of like wandering off and making the movie. And then there being no proof that that paid off for the people involved. Mm. As good as The Irishman is and as happy as I am to see it, you know, get a claim and get in the Criterion Collection and all that. Um, There's just something really funny about the thought of Netflix spending all that money and getting no benefit for it. Yeah. So we will go on to our main topic this week, which is books about movies, particularly our favourite books about movies. Uh, this was inspired by the fact that this week I decided to read uh, Robert Bresson's Notes on the Cinematograph, which is uh, a movie, a book that I've had on my shelf for ages and ages and ages. I think I bought it in a secondhand bookshop like probably about a year or two ago, and I've always been meaning to read and just never got round to. Um, but it's a very it's a very short read. It's only like ninety pages long, and it's essentially just a collection of different notes that Bresson wrote over the course of you know sort of twenty years, in which he kind of talks about his aesthetic approach to movie making, and you know he 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 kind of like lays out his ideas about what a film is to him, you know, his thoughts on actors versus what he calls models, the people who appear in his movies. You know his idea of wanting people to uh, you know kind of uh, laying out his ideas about how acting is inherently false and what you want is someone who just exists on screen as a character and it's really fascinating it's not necessarily something that you can agree with uh, 100% of the time certainly I didn't agree with everything is but it was really fascinating to me as essentially a monologue from a filmmaker whose work I love and who I think was a very singular talent you know, kind of laying out his reason for everything he does, and it's really fascinating that regard. So, I thought it'd be fun in this week's episode for us to talk about some of our favorite books about films, about the filmmaking process, about you know the philosophy of, of film and things like that. Um, and I'll also just read some of the, my favorite kind of quotes from from notes on the cinematograph to give people a sense of of what he kind of says in the book. 
The eye, in general, superficial. The ear, profound and inventive. A locomotive's whistle imprints on us a whole railway station. Make visible what, without you, might perhaps never have been seen. The most ordinary word, when put into place, suddenly acquires brilliance. That is the brilliance with which your images must shine. So the whole book is basically that. Oh, it's poetry. Yeah, they are. They're they're nice, lovely little encapsulations. And then, every so often, a slightly uh, gossipy kind of thing where he talks about, without saying the name of the film, because it will always be x rather than saying what the film is but complaining about a certain film or a certain filmmaker and about how false their choices were and things like that which is a a little more gossipy but also still in that kind of wonderful elliptical style um but yeah it's it's a very if if you've seen a bunch of bresson's movies it's a really great read because i think it really does contextualize a lot of his choices and you know like when people talk about the blankness of his performers and things like that when you read his philosophy behind it all those things start to make a lot more sense more so than i think any of the dozens of reviews of his work and kind of like scholarly essays that i've read over the years of people trying to really dig deep into his work yeah that's beautiful like these lovely little um cinematic koans or like Mm -hmm. things to kind of rest your mind on and i think there's something about that in particular where if you are stuck on a shoot that's dragging on and you can't find this shot that's almost like a booster shot (laughs) to help you get the shot like some kind of mantra or a little encapsulation to just kind of pick you up so that you can carry on going and for me in terms of like books on on film because i've done a studied film in an academic context so i've read a lot of really amazing academic writing about film but that can often be just really quite dense and not particularly Mm. accessible and I think what's beautiful about bringing in a lot of that you know that kind of that lyrical quality is that it conveys a a feeling and you can have a physiological reaction to it as you would any other kind of piece of creative writing like it's truly creative in that sense Um, but that's not to do down a lot of the the reading um, that I've been able to read and have access to because guess what a lot of academic texts are very expensive <laughs> um, but things like I mean Laura Mulvey's writing was incredibly formative yes um, Molly Haskell as well I mean I'm not sure if I read her again that I'd necessarily agree with everything that she said but I think Laura Mulvey was just so much of her writing is incredibly um, prophetic and just being able to give terms like final girl and draw draw things together and, and patterns that aren't aren't consciously kind of created by, by culture but being able to give them a kind of like framing as legitimate kind of tropes and, and things like that is really amazing and for, mm. and for me like books on film as well Ed for me like particularly when I was younger and age certification was more of a thing I would read scripts um, oh, cool. I think drew scriptorama online and Springfield Springfield and I remember being taken to Waterstones of a weekend and being allowed to just kind of find entertain myself really and I'd find myself in the film section more often than not and I think I must have been about 14 but reading the published script to secretary oh wow which you know I really shouldn't have been reading at that age but <laughs> hey here I am the person that I am off the back of doing that um because you know that's one of the beautiful things about books <laughs> on the whole they're not actually censored in us in an age certification way I was not allowed to buy it of course but I'd just go and read it in the in in the shop uh, but it, it enabled me to I think that gave me an understanding of of where films came from, like how they grew. You know, they didn't just magically turn up like you'd read a script. And I think I read the script for happiness when I was about 13. (laughs) Not saying I condone this. I'm just saying, you know, this is what happened for me. So many great books about film and about writing, but I think, and, and screenwriting, but really, if you want to learn about screenwriting, read scripts. Yeah. I think that's the easiest yeah, way. And, and you know, the, the Academy release, you know, the contending scripts every year, I think is always, I love that. I love sitting down and, and, and reading them and seeing like what surprises me in terms of like 
reverse engineering from the film to the script. Mm, you know, did I expect yeah. that to come across? Do I feel like, oh, I didn't realize that was how they kind of put that? Because a script is the most valuable. Like it, there's so much weight on a script <laughs> to kind of put put across what this film is going to be. Mm. So I always love, yeah, love reading. Yeah, those are always one of my favourite things every year when when I used to uh, vote for critics awards. Like that was one of the things you would get alongside the screeners was the scripts, and you could really get a sense of a writer's personality from you know reading through it and seeing who was especially sparse in their descriptions, who was you know overly florid and descriptive, and and really getting a sense that script writing is as much kind of an art as uh, as writing a novel there is definitely a sense that certain writers have a, a flair it's not this kind of like stock thing where you just kind of like okay the dialogue is the thing that's distinctive about a writer's work it's like no it's how much information they convey on the page for the actors for the directors for everyone else who's gonna have to work from this script and script and to visualize it in some way mm. uh in terms of other books that i that really leapt out to me is just like some of my favorites i i'm a big fan of books about the production of specific movies particularly ones where a writer has been embedded with the production because i do feel like you get a real strong sense of what it is to work on a film from those and of the just the the mechanics of it the labor of it the they do so much i think to simultaneously demystify filmmaking by talking about you know like the basics of what a cinematographer has to do what a first ad has to do and things like yeah. that but also add to the sense of the romance of it because it's like oh this all these people working together to kind of produce something Although, ironically, possibly my favourite examples of that subgenre of books about movies that weren't very good or that didn't didn't have a particularly fruitful life once they were released. The first one, I think this is the gold standard, is The Devil's Candy by Julie Salomon, which is about the making of The Bonfire of the Vanities, the uh, ill-fated Brian De Palma adaptation of the Tom Wolfe book, which is just a... It's such a fun read. Like it's so fun seeing the good intentions of everyone involved. You know, they've got this this book that was a huge success and critical success that, you know, De Palma's really excited about working on, how he wants to go in making this like really scabrous satire, but how his the like these little decisions that are made early on in terms of casting or whatever just completely snowball further down the line and the, the the most illustrative story from it and the one that everyone cites is like how he sent a he sent the um the first ad off to film footage of a plane landing into i think jfk airport and the whole thing was okay we want the plane to be landing at the exact like moment that the sun hits in a certain way and it took them days of just them sitting there at like um you know at the same time every day until they got the exact shot and it never quite lined up and eventually they got it and the shot cost about a million dollars and it's not in the movie i don't think i don't think they ended up using it at all or if it is it's not an impactful or important thing or something like the the judge and the finale in the film is played i believe by morgan freeman but in the book is uh the character is like kind of monstrous and in the film because Morgan Freeman has a certain gravitas it completely alters the entire tone of the final end of the movie and things like that and it's just it's just really it, it kind of gets that um, William Goldman thing of like nobody knows anything where it's like no one involved in the movie necessarily thinks that it's all going wrong until they're too far into it for, before they can actually do anything to right the ship. I'm also a big fan of that kind of there's something interesting about how books can sometimes give a better insight into film than film can. Like it's mm, like it's yeah, kind yeah. of on the record, but 
like a safe distance enough from the medium itself <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which is why again and I'm going a little bit wider into sort of TV and not just film here but things like the oral history of Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. yeah, where sometimes you, you just need it yeah quite literally on the record and the kid stays in the picture yeah that's on my list yeah um I think is it Dogville versus Hollywood is a really interesting one. I think yeah, I I really love a good sort of non-fiction journalistic take on certain eras mm. of of the industry. Yes. Ra- rather than necessarily just kind of talking about the content of the films um that you know their content but because that's the only way that you're really going to get to know about the in- what's like the story of the industry is in mm. is in the trades and in books and you know there's there's some films that do get made that kind of hint at like but they're generally more satirical or you know yeah or documentaries you know they're not necessarily gonna have as much like i don't know as much of the story or or as what it's very difficult to get as wide a span and the various dimensions of what was going on in the industry at that point other than in a in a book i think Hmm. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true because I think if you look at something like, like Mark Harris has written a couple of really great books about very, very specific points in the industry. Um, Pictures at a Revolution, which is about the five films that were nominated for Best Picture in nineteen sixty eight for nineteen sixty seven, and that's it's really really good movie writing because on the one hand it's very specific and it's following the stories of how Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle uh, In the Heat of the Night The Graduate and ooh what's the other one oh um, who's who, I guess who's coming to dinner yes how those five films got made and their journey from you know script idea like you know the the two guys who wrote Bonnie and Clyde you know just watching a ton of Truffaut and Goddard movies and kind of sitting there and saying we can do this we need to do this and you know they're making American movies better than we are you know they understand us better you know and then trying to get Goddard to make it and all this sort of stuff um and then you know on the other side you know the 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 sheer bloat of Dr. Doolittle uh, you know that that movie kind of coming together and just obviously being a rolling disaster from the off but everyone just thinking well Rex Harrison's a star of course it'll make money and at the same time you know through that prism he's able to look at the broader things of what was going on in the in the industry and those five movies are kind of perfect for it because you do see the new guard kind of rising up these kind of younger filmmakers who want to do something different and are inspired by all this are uh, European uh, cinema that's coming over and then you have the kind of like the old musty kind of like epic musical thing that was really dying a death at the time but had been what Hollywood had really gone all in on for several years at that point and that's that's a movie that's a book that I think really does a great job of being on the one level very intimate and in that it's following these particular stories and these particular creatives and getting first hand accounts you know from everyone who's still alive but also having this real, you know, bird's eye view of the whole thing. Speaking of bird's eye views, another kind of big part of my film education and still on my um, bookshelf to this day, Jürgen Müller's big movies of the decades. Mm -hmm. Series is amazing because again, that's not every single film that was released in that decade. And, and it does have more of a kind of Western English speaking slant. But in terms of what he picks and what he curates, and it's not in that kind of like um, movies to see before you die, but like in terms of being able to see the progression of a decade hmm. in terms of content. And there's such beautiful snapshots, like there's some really gorgeous stills, there's synopses, there's little... Um, kind of flash kind of articles trivia and that's such a great way to I think familiarise yourself with a decade or they're really beautifully formatted books I think because they're, they're not too daunting they are like they're gorgeous coffee table books and, and it's 
you're encouraged and, and welcomed in and engage with them much like you would a film, right? Because they are very mm. glossy. But if you are daunted by, you know, a certain aspect of film, I, th- I think it's it can still feel quite excluding and not particularly welcoming. Mm. So these great books that do draw you in on the image so much more and like they pick like really iconic shots from, from films. That helped me because I think like sometimes you're like, oh God, where do you start? But if you flick through one of Jürgen Muller's books, you can be like, oh, well maybe I'll start with, you know, Chrissy's Honor in the 80s, mm-hmm. right? Like it gives you a window and a kind of encapsulation and, and a nice list if you want to like tick, tick stuff off. But, and it, it can be, it's a little bit arbitrary in some ways to kind of just pick films by decades. And, and the state of cinema and what's being put out particularly if it is the ma- majority like American, European British kind of filmmaking but I'm still really mm. fond of them Ed I am because I think it does give you that span that kind of bird's eye view that I think will ultimately end up empowering each person who reads them they don't feel, yeah. they're curated without being like reverential canon you know yeah and I, I think that there's something to be said for like providing people with that kind of uh, encyclopedic approach or like uh, that broad kind of scattershot approach because like you say everyone kind of has their own unique journey through cinephilia or whatever um, in terms of like the movies that they discover that then lead them to discover other movies you know everyone you know maybe we're all kind of drawing from the same canon initially whether it's the I am to be top 250 although even then that's you know kind of like dynamic and changed a lot over the last decade or so but you know you're all kind of coming from the same canon but then something like that that maybe is a little more esoteric will offer people a different journey and will kind of expose people to something more a book in a similar vein that uh, I think is still good although it's kind of been superseded by the documentary that was adapted out of it is um, the story of film by Mark Cousins. Yeah. Which is a really good, thorough, but very kind of actually very quick and readable book that tries to encompass like an entire history, uh, an entire century of of cinema uh, at the point that it was published in the, I think the mid nineties, but that is deliberately positing itself as non-Western, non American as possible. Obviously, the history of cinema obviously has its roots in America with Edison and whatever like that, and obviously that's an important part of it, but he is deliberately kind of like saying, okay, I'm going to tell you about Asian cinema, I'm going to tell you about you know Eastern European cinema, I'm going to tell you about African cinema, I'm going to tell you about all these things that are often left out of the narrative, and you know, there's, there's limits to what you can do with that in terms of a book, because um, you know, one of the advantages that I think a lot of books about cinema have is if they're about popular films, you can kind of assume that people have seen them. Whereas with something like the story of film, it's like I'm going to tell you about this film. It's really hard to find, so I'm just going to have to describe it to you, and you're going to have to believe me when I say it's revolutionary or whatever. Which is kind of why the documentary, which I is is like one of my comfort watches. I just like like putting on an episode and having it play out because it's just so there's something so soothing about it. Mm. Um, that's one of the advantages it has is that it can show you, you know, hyenas or something like that, you know, some some film that is not readily available uh, and easy for people to find from, you know, from Africa and that isn't necessarily considered part of kind of like the central canon, but uh, Cousins clearly believes that it is and provides a compelling argument for why it should be uh, included. And I think that that kind setting out with that kind of a corrective is uh you know quite noble really when there is such a a homogeneity around the films that are considered important Mm. yeah that's such a good point ed i think the other thing i want to say though is that i'm aware that i've been saying like oh you know really dense inaccessible you know academic (laughs) um and it's not to say that i i do really like what i come away with from reading academic texts um but i think the one that sticks in my mind that i think is because it really did change my perspective on how to read and analyze film um is filmosophy by daniel frampton Mm -hmm. where he puts forward a really compelling case 
for saying that a film is a mind of its own and he and he okay. uses this portmanteau film mind where he says like it's not actually necessarily the director it's not necessarily the director's point of view even though the director is responsible for bringing it into being it's almost like the film is kind of considering its own it's a, a film creates a perspective that considers its own characters and context and world I'm going to paraphrase it very badly, as you can tell that I have done this there. But it's such an interesting read, and it really did help me kind of consider film in and of itself. It's not to say that I think it's worth separating things completely from directors and people who are responsible for making things, particularly at a time when we are searching for justice, and that I, I don't think separating art from artist is um, as long as that uh, doesn't impede... <laughs> Bringing, bringing people to accountability. Um, mm. You know, I won't, I won't bring that up just as we're coming to a close <laughs> and us going through the rigmarole of that argument again. But I think it is an interesting way to consider what film is, and that, mm. and not a film mind in terms of something that's like overtly logical or computating through things. It's a, it's a thing that observes and perceives and feels so it's a mind not a brain you know it's also a mm -hmm. heart and various other um, elements and it is really beautifully written it's not hugely long um, it's not necessarily prosaic but and I did have to go over it a few times to really get what he was on about but I think it's one of the most interesting and also sadly overlooked sort of pieces of, of film work and, and criticism for a while um so I'm not hating on academic film writing. I think, yeah, filmosophy is particularly good, though. So we end this episode, as we end all our episodes, with short reverse shot recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, I have to say, um, everyone donate to bailout funds, please, and mm -hmm. um, all of the GoFundMes going... And it's, and it's, and it's uh, disgusting and a shame that there are so many of them because it's not just for George Floyd, it's for many other human beings who have been murdered because of belonging to a certain, certain group. But if you need, as I think we all do, not to make light of that, but to try and find some joy in absurdity parallel to all of the horror that's going on, on Daily Motion, there is a, a two and a half-ish minute SNL sketch, which is so rare and odd, it's not anywhere else. And it was brought to my attention because of a Vulture article where they interviewed uh, Lucy Lawless, who stars in it, um, because <laughs> she. And it was recently because uh, Gemini legend Stevie Nicks had her solo return recently, and in this SNL sketch, Lucy Lawless plays Stevie Nicks, who has her own like Mexican restaurant, <laughs> <laughs> and it changes various Fleetwood Mac and Stevie Nicks songs to be um, jingles for her. Her burrito empire it's brilliant and made me giggle and lucy lawless is like stella as stevie nicks like who knew <laughs> um so it's a little brief flash of absurdity in the pan of horror at the moment uh speaking of lucy lawless i only just found out this week that she's in the first raimi spider-man which i didn't realize uh someone posted a picture of her dressed as a punk girl who i think um, talks to Peter Parker at one point. I just kind of like, oh yeah, that's very clearly her. <laughs> For some reason, I never realised. Um, but yes, uh, I am going to recommend a YouTube video from uh, Jenny Nicholson, who is a, a YouTuber who I like a lot. Oh, she she's lots great. Of, yeah, she does lots of fun videos about um, writing, about often a lot about Star Wars. Uh, but you know, she's she's just really funny, really interesting. Her latest video has personal significance to me because it's about her watching all 14 Land Before Time movies. And it has particular significance to me because eight years ago, I did the exact same thing <laughs> over the course of a weekend with uh, friends friends of the show, uh, John and Michaela Livingston Banks, where we just spent a whole day watching all, well, at the time, all 13, and now 14 came out a couple of years ago. And it's just really funny because it was really funny watching that video and being reminded about how weird some of those movies get not just in terms of the one that ends with the revelation that two of the characters are actually aliens, but just in terms of 
the weird repetition of plot points, how they're constantly defeating enemies by pushing rocks on them. It's kind of the the Simpsons jo- uh, night boat joke about how there's always a fjord, there's always a rock that you can push onto a T-Rex's head in the Land Before Time movies. And she just is... She just puts together the clips from those movies so well in such a way that points out how odd they are, how silly they are, even within the premise of, you know, being movies about talking dinosaurs, how bizarre a lot of the songs are and how a lot of them do seem to feel like the person singing them is making them up on the spot because they were told to. And it's just it's just a really funny video. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's I think it's literally just called I Watched All 14 land before time movies in quarantine but if you just search for jenny jenny nicholson and land before time you'll find it easily enough Uh, and there will be a link in the description to this as well if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me